Good morning. I want to welcome you to Brea Bible Church this morning. We are continuing our study in this fourth gospel, and we're looking at the fifth chapter right now. And this chapter opens with Yeshua in Jerusalem at the pool of Bethesda. At this pool, there's a multitude of sick folks. There was this idea that, you know, the, there's healing in these waters, so all the sick people would go and hang out there. So Yeshua's there, and there's this multitude of people, and Yeshua picks out this one man that's been there, and he's been sick for 38 years, and Yeshua heals him instantly. And then he commands the man, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And immediately the man is healed, he takes up his bed, and he walks. This miracle was done on the Sabbath, I don't think by accident at all, but, you know, to get the Jewish leader's attention, he did this on the Sabbath, and it prompted the leaders to accuse him of law-breaking. And so in verse 16, he says, For this reason the Jews were persecuting Yeshua, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So you want to persecute people who make people well. You know, that's not a good thing. Just You can't just go around indiscriminately healing people whenever you feel like it. You know, I mean, it's just ridiculous, all right? So Yeshua responds to this with a statement that enrages the Jews to the point that they're not persecuting him, they want to just kill him. He says in verse 17, He answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. See, the, to the charge of breaking the Sabbath, Yeshua states that the Sabbath regulations have no more authority over him than they do over God. He says, God works on the Sabbath, and so do I. Alright, so they're upset already. Now they're really upset. Alright, he's pushing their buttons, okay? And to this, the Jews respond, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. There was no question in the minds of the Jews that Yeshua was claiming to be Yahweh. They got it. They understood that's what He was saying. So He went from a Sabbath breaker to a blasphemer. They said He makes Himself equal as God and they were right. What is so important to see here is not that they would draw that conclusion. What's important to see that Yeshua reinforced it. He didn't say, oh, no, you got me wrong. I'm not saying that, fellas. He starts at verse 19, goes to the end of the chapter, to verse 47, proving that what they're saying is true. You say I'm equal with God? Guess what I am. And then he goes and launches into this diatribe to prove it. So in verses 19 to 47, Yeshua gives the most complete explanation of His relationship to the God the Father that you'll find in the Gospels. Now, I'm not a real big fan of red letter editions, because I think some people think that's only what's important, it's in the red letters. But I like it here in this text, because when you look at this text in a red letter Bible, you see everything in here are the words of Christ. Verse 19, all the way down. This is Him defending His deity, saying, what you said is true, I am equal with God. They accuse Him of blasphemy, which was a capital offense, and He responds by saying, yeah, you got it right, I'm equal with God in every way. To not honor me is to not honor the Father. <laughs> so you know if they were mad before, they're really mad now. I mean, he's just really pushing their buttons because he's declaring who he is here. Now this dialogue that Yeshua gives divides into two parts. The first part is verse 19 to 30, in which Yeshua addresses both the equity and the distinction 
between the Father and the Son. God the Father, God the Son are equal. All the Son's power and authority comes from the Father. Now the second part includes verse 31 through 47 and addresses the diversity of God the Father and God the Son. They're two distinct persons. The Son does what He has seen the Father do. The Father bears witness to the Son. Now in our last study, we looked at the first half of the first part. We looked at verses 19 to 24. This morning we want to look at verses 25 through 30. That last section, 19 to 24, I think declares the deity of Christ as clear as any text you'll find in the New Testament. I mean, you have to grasp what he's saying here. Verse 23 says, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. The Son's honor is equal to the Father's honor. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. That is a very strong statement on the deity of Christ. Now, in our 21st century world of pluralism, where there's so many different religious beliefs competing for our allegiance, this verse blows away all views but Christianity. All of them. If you don't honor the Son, Yeshua HaMashiach, you don't honor the Father who sent Him. You simply cannot have a relationship with God apart from Yeshua. You can't do it. That's what Yeshua said. The Father is in agreement. There's no way around this. So many people will say, well, they worship God, but they're not sure about Yeshua. Well, I'm not sure about you. Okay? Anyone who doesn't honor Yeshua for who He really is, which is God, a very God, the Messiah, the crucified and risen Savior of the world, they don't honor God. They're one. There's a unity there. We closed last time with verse 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. Has, present tense, eternal life. And does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. The Greek tense here for past, it happened. It indicates that the transfer from death to life has already taken place. And now the believer is living with the results of that change. Then verse 25 is kind of a pictorial view of verse 24. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Truly, truly, this is the third double amen in this sequence here, in this dialogue. And the double amen found in the initial position, he's stressing the importance of something. This is significant. This is trustworthy. You've got to get what I'm saying. He says, an hour is coming now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. The voice here of the Son of God is the life-giving voice of God. And people, this is one of the themes of the fourth gospel. The theme that Yeshua brings life to the dead. You see it over and over throughout this book. We saw it in chapter 1, verse 4, where it says, In Him, speaking of the Word, was life. Verse 15 of chapter 3 says, so that whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. We're all familiar with 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. This thought is all through the Gospel. Yeshua brings life. 
The theme, verse 20, 31, these things have been written so that you may believe that Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. People, dead men do not come to life through a religious ceremony. Whether it be baptism, whatever other kind of religious ceremony you come up, they don't come to life through a ceremony. Dead men don't come alive through certain works or certain rituals that they do. It doesn't happen. Dead men only come to life when they hear the voice of God calling them out of their deadness to life. When we get into chapter 6, this is going to really be hammered home, okay? Hearing Yeshua's word here refers more than just hearing the sound of His voice at the present time to those people that were standing there. Obviously, the Jewish leaders, they were hearing His voice. They were hearing the sound of His voice, but they weren't coming to life. Because it was falling on deaf ears. They were dead. Well, when does Yeshua say that the dead will come to life? He says there's an hour coming, and now is. So, were men receiving eternal life at that time? <laughs> well, he says they are. Many commentators call this realized eschatology in John's Gospel. All right, which is an aspect, they say, of future conditions that exist already in the present. Now, in this case, they say it refers to the believer's possession of eternal life already. Beasley Murray called this verse the strongest affirmation of realized eschatology applied to the believer in the New Testament. So they're saying, you know, John is talking about an eschatology that's already being realized. This is already happening. W. Hall Harris III writes this, And it is most significant that in Jesus' reply to the Jews, both realized eschatology and final eschatology are blended. Realized eschatology in verses 19-25, final eschatology in verse 26-30. Note this tension between the present and the future. Eternal life is a thing to be had now, he says it now is. And the transition from death to life is already made. Dead, he says, refers to the spiritual dead. But in verse 29, the physical dead come out of the tombs at the voice of the Son for future judgment. So he says he's talking about things that are happening now, talking about things that happen in the future, talking about spiritual resurrection, talking about physical resurrection. So many see Yeshua's statement as a realized eschatology. They see it as those people at that present time receiving eternal life. But there's a problem with that. Because in Mark's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel, Yeshua teaches that eternal life is a thing in the age to come. Not in that age. So these are both words of Yeshua. Look what Mark says. This is Yeshua speaking, but that he shall receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. The present age, guess what? The age they were living in. It's not our present age. Okay? This was written 2,000 years ago. It's written to them. It's their present. A lot of people have problems with this stuff. You know, they read the Bible and they say, oh, look, it's the present age. Well, it's not written to you. Okay? That makes a big difference. You're reading somebody else's mail. And it was written 2,000 years ago. That present age. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, farms, along with persecutions. Now watch. And in the age to come, eternal life. In the age to come. So eternal life wasn't a condition of the present age, they're saying. Look what Luke says, Luke 18.30, or Yeshua says this in Luke's Gospel. 
Luke records Yeshua saying, Who shall not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life? So, if we compare these two, you got Yeshua saying in Luke recording Yeshua saying that eternal life is in the age to come, but you got Lazarus recording saying it now is those who hear are coming to life. So you got John's gospel, and it sounds like men are receiving eternal life at that moment. But here Yeshua says they're receiving in the age to come. So what does it mean to receive eternal life in the age to come? I mean, what you know, that's a troublesome statement for many people. Let me just give you a few comments on it. Uh, Sweet says this, commenting on that. He says, the age which is to follow the parousia. That's how he defines the age to come. Guess what? I agree with him. But if you agree with them, and most people say, parousia hasn't come, eternal life hasn't come then. People are still without eternal life. You know, I mean, Sweet is saying that after Christ comes, then eternal life comes. And I, I think he's right. Commenting on, and in the age to come, Weiss Word Study says this, the authorities are silent on all this. And the present writer confesses that he is at a loss to suggest an interpretation. The best he can do is offer the usage of the Greek words in question. So Weist has enough guts, enough you know, honesty to say, I don't have a clue what this means. Because he's saying that eternal life is a, is a feature of the age to come. And these guys believe they're in the present age. They haven't gotten to the age to come. So therefore, they're saying... We don't have eternal life, according to these verses. Now, as obvious, this phrase is troubling. Yeshua says one thing in one gospel, something in the other gospel. Well, to understand what he is saying, first thing we need to understand is that the New Testament talks about two ages. This age and the age to come. We see it in many places. Matthew 12. And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit... It shall not be forgiven him either in this age, the age they were living in, or in the age to come. The word come at the end of the verse here is the Greek word mellow. It means about to be. So at the present age they were living in, the age about to come was on the verge of coming. Remember, this is 2,000 years ago. About to come for who? Well, not for us. Because it's not written to us. It's written 2,000 years ago to them. To the original audience. Those in the first century, the age to come was about to come. Look what Ephesians 1.21 says, For above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. So Paul's writing to the Ephesians, and the age they're living in is this age. Two ages. The New Testament speaks of this over and over again. The understanding of these two ages and when they changed is fundamental to interpreting the Scripture correctly. If you don't get this, you'll not interpret the Scripture. Because you'll apply things that don't apply to you. You know, you'll just get the time. you got to understand time. And that's why, you know, that little saying, preterism is about time. It is about time. You have to understand what's happening when. The New Testament writers lived in the age called this age. Because they were living in it. That's why it was this age. To the New Testament writers, the age to come was future. But it was near because the age they lived in was about to end. 
1 Corinthians 10.11 says, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. Our, the, the Corinthians living at that time. They were written for our instructions, upon whom the Corinthians of that first generation, the ends of the ages have come. See, Paul said very plainly, the end of the ages was coming upon them. The first century saints. This age was about to end. 1 Peter 1.20 For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last days for the sake of you. So Yeshua came during the last days, and most people believe we're still living in the last days. But here's what you got to understand. The last days is the last days of this age of the Bible. Not this age we're living in, this age of the Bible. Okay? It was the last days of the Old Covenant age because the New Covenant has no last days because it's an everlasting covenant. It doesn't ever end. There's no last days to the New Covenant. It was the last days of the Old Covenant. And most people, because they don't get that, they're still thinking we're in the last days. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years now. That's a long last day. Okay? That's a long last day. Well, Yeshua said He came to rescue us from the present evil age. Look at Galatians 1.4. Paul says, Who gave Himself for our sins so that He might rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of God and our Father. The evil age came to an end with the destruction of the Jewish temple in AD 70 in the destruction of Jerusalem. When Jerusalem was destroyed, the Old Covenant came to an end. That's done. So the New Testament writers lived in what the Bible called the present evil age. This age of the Bible is the age of the Old Covenant that was about to pass away in the first century. And it should be clear to you that this age is not the Christian age we live in. In the first century, the age of the Old Covenant was fading. It would end completely once God judged that temple and that system, bringing it to an end. Look at Hebrews says in 8.13. When he said, a new covenant, a new one's coming. He's made the first, the Old Covenant, obsolete. But, whatever, referring to that Old Covenant, is becoming, present tense, obsolete, and growing, present tense, old, is ready to disappear. It hadn't disappeared yet. Because for 40 years, the old and the new overlapped. The new started at Pentecost. The old started to fade from that time on. This uh, writer writes Hebrews around 64 to 67. At this time, the old covenant's still in effect. They're still going to the temple. They're still offering sacrifices. But it's really on the verge of passing away. And a few years later, it passed away in the destruction of Jerusalem. Sacrifices were done. Priesthood was done. Genealogy was done. All done. That this age of the Bible is now ancient history. Like I said, this is so important for biblical interpretation. You can't interpret Scripture without understanding that. So we see there's a, in the age to come, there's going to be eternal life. So Yeshua says that eternal life is a condition of the age to come. Then does this mean that the New Testament saints who lived in this age did not yet have eternal life? Or we could ask the question this way, when did believers receive eternal life? Because in John's Gospel, it sure sounds like he's saying they're getting life right then. Well, to really answer the question, you have to know what eternal life is. But first, you need to understand that prior to Yeshua's messianic work, nobody ever went to heaven. When men died, they went to holding place of the dead, and they waited for the atoning work of Christ and the resurrection from the dead. In the Tanakh, 
The Hebrew word for where they went prior to resurrection, Sheol, in the New Testament, is the word Hades. And to understand eternal life, we need to understand death. Because if we're getting life, what are we getting life from and what are we dead from? In order to do that, you just go back to Genesis in the book of beginnings where it all starts in 2.15. He says, and Yahweh God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it. The Garden of Eden is the temple of God. It is God's dwelling place. It is the Holy of Holies. It is his temple. It is his holy mountain. All right. This is where God lives. God took Adam and Eve and he brought him into fellowship with himself in his garden. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, From the tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, God warned Adam regarding the fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat of it, you're going to die. Adam disobeyed, ate of the tree. He didn't die physically that day. He lived for another 800 years beyond that day. Past when he ate the fruit. But God said he would die the day he ate. And we know that God doesn't lie. So Adam didn't die physically. What happened? What happened at this point when he disobeyed God? He got thrown out of the garden. He was no longer in the dwelling place of God. He was no longer in fellowship with God. He's put out of the garden and God put some, you know, seraphim there with some flaming swords. You're not coming back in here. You're out of fellowship. You lost my fellowship because of sin. He died spiritually. He was separated from his God because of his disobedience. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, Behold, Yahweh's hand is not short that it cannot save, neither is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Because of his sin, man was separated from God. He was dead in trespasses and sin. And the focus of God's plan of redemption is to restore through Yeshua what man lost through Adam. In 1 Corinthians 15, 21, for since by a man, that's Adam, came death. Spiritual death. He lost the fellowship with God. By a man, that's Christ, also came the resurrection of the dead. That's eternal life. Because of Adam's sin, we're all born dead. He's the federal head. He's a representative of the human race. We are separated. We are born in a state separated from God. That's why we looked at John 3. You have to be born anew. You have to be born from above. You need a new birth because you're born dead. But through Yeshua came the resurrection from the dead. Yeshua came to redeem man from death, to resurrect man back into the presence of God, to give us eternal life. Eternal life is life in the presence of God. To be in His presence is life. To be separated from His presence is death. And the Bible is God's book about His plan to restore the spiritual union of the creation. Resurrection is not about bringing physical bodies out of graves. It's about restoring man into the presence of His Creator. To be taken out of Sheol and brought into the presence of the Lord is what the Bible calls the resurrection. It's what the Bible calls eternal life. This resurrection that brings life happened at the end of the Old Covenant age. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise in the, last, in the resurrection on the last day. See, they knew the resurrection happened at the last day. The last day of what? The earth? No, the last day of the old covenant. The last days of this age. The age to come doesn't have last days. So the resurrection was to happen at the end of the old covenant when the temple was destroyed. Just as Daniel said it would. In Daniel uh, 12.2 he says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. 
Talking about a resurrection. These to everlasting life, others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And Daniel also tells us when that would happen. So, I, I, no one really questions the fact that Daniel 12 is talking about resurrection. The question is, when does this happen? And I think Daniel makes it really clear when it happens. Look what he says. And I heard the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, as he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, that it would be for a time, times, and a half a time. That's three and a half years. He says, as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. As soon as the holy people get shattered, 80, 70 people, all right, this siege on Jerusalem was a three and a half year long siege. The Romans came up, built the battle work. It lasted for three and a half years, time, time, and a half time. Three and a half years. The power of the people were shattered. That was the time of the resurrection. So the resurrection was to happen at the end of the Jewish age, which was the Old Covenant age. We know this happened in 870 because that's when the temple was destroyed. That's when the Old Covenant was finished. To be resurrected was to be given eternal life into the presence of God. At 870, God emptied Sheol of the righteous and the wicked to stand judgment. The, the, the righteous went into His presence. They had eternal life. Now they're in the presence of God. The wicked were judged. We'll talk about that in a minute. We need to understand that those saints who lived in the transition time from Pentecost to Holocaust to AD 70, the saints who lived in that time, they did not have salvation. They did not have justification. They did not have eternal life in its consummated form. It was not a completed event in their lives. It had begun, but it wasn't completed. It was their hope. They looked forward to the completion of their salvation. And see, this is where understanding the transition period helps you because so many people read today and they read that our salvation is a hope and they say, it's not completed yet. we got a hope. We don't have a hope. Alright, we have a have. Okay? Look at Romans 13, 11 and 12. He says, And this do, knowing the time, that it's already the hour for you to waken out of sleep, for now is salvation nearer than when we believe. What? It's nearer? I thought they had... Yeshua was talking to these people 30 years prior to this writing, and He said, telling them they have eternal life. He said, it's near. Because He said, the night's almost gone. That's the Old Covenant He's talking about. The night. The Old Covenant's almost gone. The day, that's the New Covenant. It's at hand. So let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Peter also states that their salvation was not yet complete. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's ready to be revealed at the last time, which would happen at the resurrection of the dead at the end of the age. We know this happened, again, in AD 70 with the destruction of Jewish temple. So the resurrection was to be given, at the resurrection, they would be given eternal life and to be brought into the presence of God. But those saints living prior to the end of the age, eternal life wasn't a present possession, it was a hope. Look at Titus says in Titus 3.7 that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. They hoped for it. But they didn't have it. You know what? You don't hope for what you have. If you do, you're foolish. Why would you sit around and hope for something you got? 
You enjoy it when you have it. You don't hope for it. It was something that was going to come at the second coming. And since the second coming hadn't come at this time yet, they were hoping for it. Those saints didn't have salvation, justification, or eternal life in its consummated form. It was not until the age to come that they received eternal life. So we live in what the Bible calls the age to come. We're in the age. We've been in the age to come since AD 70. We have eternal life at the moment we trust Christ. No waiting, no anything. So if eternal life did not come until AD 70 in the consummated age to come, why does Yeshua say that they are? there's an hour coming and now is? How can they have it if they don't have it? And a lot of people get tripped up on this when they read because they see these contradictions or apparent contradictions. The new covenant had been inaugurated, but it wasn't consummated. So this transition time was a unique time. There's not been a time like it before. Not going to be a time like it. We're not living in that day. It was a time of already. They had things in an in a initial form, but it not consummated. So it was a time of already, but not yet. You, If you read commentators, you read scholars, they'll talk about this already, but not yet. The problem is they talk about it like it's still happening. It's still happening today. I'm like, well, you don't have your time down. It's not... Already anymore, but not yet. We have it. Eternal life wasn't a present possession. For them, it was a hope. That's the already not yet character of that 40-year period. Between Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit, the birth of the church, till AD 70, the consummation, that 40-year trial period, they had eternal life positionally, but it was not theirs until the Lord returned finally. They had the promise of it. They had the Holy Spirit as the guarantee. But they still waited for its consummation that they might be in the presence of the Lord. Redemption was still a hope to them until AD 70. In the consummation of all their promises, they lived in hope. Believers, we are no longer in the already but not yet transition period. That we got to understand when the ages change. We're living in the new covenant age where righteousness dwells. We're not living in the age of hope. We're living in the age of have. The righteousness of Christ is ours. Eternal life is ours. Immortality is ours. Now. We're not waiting for anything. So when Yeshua says, and in our coming, and now is, something has arrived already, but it has future aspects. Something has arrived in the present, but it had a future completion. Remember, He's acting like they have life now. He hasn't even gone to the cross yet. The Holy Spirit hasn't come. The Holy Spirit brings life. Gives new life. The ministry of salvation through the Lord had begun. People were receiving life. (laughs) I I read this and so I, I just had to share this with you. Commenting on this verse, Roger Hahn writes this. He says, It speaks of an hour in which the dead will hear the voice of Christ and those who hear will live. Again, the concept is that of obedience. Those who obey the voice of Christ will live. Really? That's what he's talking about here? Our obedience? <laughs> well, that's exactly what it is. And, and so many people miss that. They're saying, well, this is about obedience. You know, you, when he calls, you got to obey. You will. There's no, there's no options here. All right? We're going to get to that when we get to chapter 6. It's not like God says, I want you to come to life. And you're like, no, nah, I really don't want to. No, stop, Lord. Stop calling me. And I feel like I'm being dragged into eternal life, but I want to be dead. It doesn't happen. It gives you life 
you hear the voice of God. It's not about obedience on your part. It has nothing to do with obeying. We hear, we live. He says, just as the Father hath life in Himself, even so He'd give life. He had the Son. Let me say that again. <laughs> For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. The Father has life in Himself. This is basically the meaning of the term, of the name Yahweh. Alright? In Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And He said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am sent you. Because Moses said, who? Well, who do I say sent you? Well, say I am sent you. And that's the meaning of that term. I am who I am is Ehia Asher Ehia. In the Hebrew, and it means I am the one who exists. The root of Ehia is Haya. Haya means to be or I exist. And the two names, Yahweh and Ehia, are related. Ehia means I exist, I will exist, I am. Yahweh means He exists, He will exist, He is. Both of the names are related to each other. They both convey the idea that Yahweh is the self-existent One. In the Tanakh, only Yahweh had life. Only He could give it to others. The Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty has given me life. Here Yeshua claims that Yahweh gives this same unique power to Him. He says, even so, He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. Now, if the Father gave the Son life, does this mean that there was a point in time where the Son was not? Does this mean that the Son came into being at a point in time? I mean, that it sounds like He, he gave the Son life. What? No, it doesn't mean that. Okay, We already looked at that. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning, was the Word. Was is the verb amy. Suggest continued existence. At the very beginning of eternity, there was nothing else. The Word existed. So what does Yeshua mean by even so He gave, referring to the Father, to the Son also to have life in Himself? Well, hang on for a second, alright? This is, this is not you know, easy stuff. But this is what theologians call the eternal generation of the Son. Basically, what they're talking about, this is something that went on in the Trinity in eternity past. It's not a simple concept to understand. Let me uh, give you A.A. A. Hodges' explanation of this, um, speaking in scholarese. He says, The eternal generation of the Son is defined as an eternal personal act of the Father, wherein by necessity of nature, not by choice of will, He generates the person not the essence of the Son, by communicating to Him the whole indivisible substance of the Godhead. If you have God the Father, you have to have God the Son. He can't be the Father without the Son. Alright, so this is talking about an eternal generation that takes place in eternity past. He goes on, without division, alienation, or change, so that the Son is the express image of the Father's person, and eternally continues, not from the Father, but in the Father, and the Father and the Son. So verse 26 teaches that the Father possesses life in Himself, self-existence. 
And we are told the Son possesses a form of life identical to that of the Father, life in Himself, 26b. The Father and the Son, however, possess life in Himself in distinct ways. The Son possesses life in Himself that's been given to Him by the Father. The Father possesses life in Himself that was given to Him by nobody. Augustine, who really did a good job of explaining this, but it's, it's lengthy, it's deep. Augustine writes this, Therefore, the Father remains life, the Son also remains life. The Father, life in Himself, not from the Son. The Son, life in Himself, but from the Father. The Son was begotten by the Father to be life in Himself, but the Father is life in Himself, unbegotten. So the doctrine of eternal generation of the Son can be misunderstood. And a lot of people do misunderstand this to suggest that there's a, a qualitative difference between the Father and the Son. And that somehow, some way, the Son came into existence. This is not what it means. Anybody who understands this doctrine and explains it will help you to see it. They're not saying that at all. Again, this is an action going on in the Trinity in eternity past, way beyond my pay grade. Okay? The eternal generation of the Son is a teaching that He is eternally begotten by necessity of the will of the Father. But that the Son, He's not created, He's not caused. And that neither the Son nor the Holy Spirit are dependent upon the Father or any other member of the Godhead dependent on each other for existence. The eternal generation of the Son is a statement on the relationship within the Trinity between the Father, the Son, before the Incarnation in eternity past. Therefore, the term is not in reference to causation, but to nature of relationship. Now, the eternal generation of the Son doesn't mean that the Father brought the Son into existence. That would deny immutability that would deny the deity of the Son, which he had just spent a lot of verses claiming he is equal to the Father. Now, I think this is the best explanation of this text, is the eternal generation. Not everybody believes this. There's other people who have other views, of course. Calvin was one of them. Calvin understood that the Father granted this power to the Son in the Incarnation. So Calvin didn't believe in eternal generation. He thought this was strictly an incarnational thing. All right, In the Incarnation, he gave him life. And those who hold this view would say that in his humiliation, he was willfully, personally, voluntarily restricting his divine attributes during the Incarnation. I agree with that, okay? He only does what the Father desires him to do. But they would say that even in his Incarnation, the Father gave him the ability to give life. But see, John 1.4 says, in him was life. He always was life. So I don't think... I don't think it's talking about an incarnational thing. I think it's dealing with eternity past because he's dealing with his deity. So in verse 21, we're told the Son gives life. Here in verse 26, the Son has life. The Son gives life because he is life. He has life. In him was life. One of Yahweh's attributes is that he is self-existent. Don't dwell on that too long. Okay? Because that I think it can hurt you. Alright? He never had a beginning. Go back as far as you want. 20 billion, grillion, zillion years. He's there. Go back further. He's still there. I, you know, I can't understand that because I had a beginning. You know, I know point in time, something happens. Well, this is, you know, from eternity past. The Trinity is there. Enjoying fellowship with one another. He's the only individual in the universe who has life from Himself. And life is the sole possession of God who is the giver of life. And Christ also, He's saying, I'm the giver of life also. He's claiming deity here. I give life. 
That life comes from those who hear the voice, and by that voice they are brought into life. 1 John 5.11 And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. This life is in His Son. He has life resident within Himself. He is the self-existent, whereas humans must receive their life from Him because He's the source of life. He says here, He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. Now, this verse distinguishes the Father from the Son and shows that the Son is eternally subject to the Father. There's an old heresy called Sabellianism, or you know it as um, monomodalism. All right, that, that God, there's only one God, and He shows up in three different forms. It's not three peoples, three different forms. This teaches no distinction of persons between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All right, sometimes it's the Father, sometimes it's the Son, sometimes it's the Spirit. It's popular today in what's called the oneness Pentecostalism, or if you ever heard of the Jesus only movement, Jesus only, because there's no God the Father, there's no Spirit, it's Jesus only. That's why it's called the Jesus only movement. Okay, they don't mean that we just love Jesus and we don't love any other God. They mean that there's no other part of it. There's no Trinity. It's oneness Pentecostalism, the Jesus only movement. Well, back in the time of Athanasius, that heresy had been seen as being resolved in this verse because he gave to the Son. If the Father is said to give something to the Son, he must be giving something to somebody. Okay, he's not giving it to nobody. Here, I'm giving myself a gift, and then I run over there and grab it, you know? That's modalism. No, that's not what he's saying. He gave, so there's a distinction of persons. We saw this in, when we looked at chapter 1. Alright, Lazarus uses the same word for the son's having life that he uses for the father having life. He has it as a source, not a channel. The life comes from the son, not just through the son. The son is life. Verse 27, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Remember what Paul said to the people on Mars Hill? He says, He has fixed a day, speaking of God, in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He's appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. So, He's going to judge the world by a man that He rose from the dead. Guess who that is? Yeshua is given all authority by the Father to judge man, to judge the earth. And He calls Him the Son of Man. This is Yeshua's favorite title for Himself. It's used over 80 times. In this gospel, the term Son of Man is always associated either with Christ's heavenly glory or with the salvation that He came to bring. This title comes from Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14. He says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to Him was given dominion glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve Him. In other words, He might receive the same honor that the Father receives. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. This kingdom doesn't end. There's no last days to His kingdom. And His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So Yeshua is the Son of Man. He is eternal God in human flesh. And He's uniquely qualified to judge humanity. Listen. Because He's a God-man. As God, He has the right to judge. As the God-man, He knows exactly the human condition and judges justly, rightly. He's, he's been in our shoes. He knows what it is to be human. He's the perfect judge of mankind. Verse 28 says, Don't marvel at this. 
For an hour is coming and now is. You know, don't marvel. What I'm about to say is going to be shocking. Don't marvel. What I'm telling you is I'm going to speak and the graves are going to empty. <laughs> that, that would cause you to marvel. Hey, well, that's a pretty cool thing. You, you really can do that? You know, you're going to hear the voice. He says, an hour is coming. Now notice here, there's no and is now. And now is. An hour is coming. Because now he's talking about a different event. What he was talking about before, and now is, was people receiving life because, the, you know, this was the coming of the new covenant into place. But here he's saying there's a time coming, because it's not until the end of this 70 years, in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. This includes the righteous and the wicked. He's going to raise everybody. Verse 29 says, And will come forth those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who did evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Everybody gets in on this. Those who are raised to life, those who are raised to judgment. Believers and unbelievers. This is what Daniel taught in Daniel 12 too. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. Those to everlasting life and others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So there's like dual resurrection here. Believers, unbelievers. Paul taught this same thing in Acts 24. Having hope in God which these men cherish themselves that there shall certainly be a resurrection both of the righteous and the wicked. Both get in on this. This is what he's saying in verse 29. Those who did good deeds, the resurrection of life. Those who did evil deeds, the resurrection of judgment. Now, is this resurrection based on works? This is a verse that people will run to. Yeah, see, depends on what you did. Those who did good deeds, you, you get to go to heaven. You get resurrected. You did bad deeds, guess what? You get judgment. Coming on this, my good buddy John Piper writes this. Now, you know if Piper's writing it, you know it's going to be lordship. Okay, you know I'm not going to agree with it, all right? But here's what Piper has to say. If you are justified by faith, your faith will produce good works. And if God is on your side, He will empower you to do good works. And if you are united to Christ, you will bear the fruit of good works. And in this way, your good works become the evidence, the confirmation, the verification at the judgment that you were justified by faith alone. So your works are what's going to be the evidence. Alright, I'm going to look at your evidence and say, you did really good. People, if we're getting judged by our works, we better run. <laughs> Alright? The good works will become the evidence. That's your evidence. That's your confirmation. He's going to look at your work. Because God doesn't know your heart. So he has to look at your works. Right? He didn't know real. I didn't know they were a believer. Oh, but look at the good things they're doing. They must be alright. I'll let them in. And that God was on your side by grace alone, and that you were united to Christ before you did any good work. Now, as you guessed it, I disagree with Piper on this, but Dr. Thomas L. Constable, in his notes on John, writes this, and I agree with this. He says, believers are those who do good, which involves believing on the Son. Theirs will be a resurrection resulting in eternal life. Those who do evil by not believing on the Son will experience eternal condemnation following their resurrection. So Yeshua's words in the next chapter, I think, really help clear this up. In 628, he says, Therefore, they said to him, What shall we do? You get it? We got to do something. 
so that we may work the works of God. I want to work the works of God. What, what work should I do? Yeshua answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe. That's a work of God. <laughs> believe your faith is a work of God. And if you have faith, it's evidence that you are his child. So what happens to the wicked that are raised? Why raise the wicked? They're raised for judgment. This is a time of judgment. They're raised, I believe, they're judged before the great white throne judgment. Then they're thrown into the lake of fire where they perish. And they're gone. Now, so what happens to unbelievers since then? Well, I think since the time of the judgment, when unbelievers die, they simply perish. Because the judgment's already taken place. They're judged already. They just go. They're perished. They're gone. What happens to believers when they die? They're with the Lord. Since AD 70 and since the judgment. See, because that was the resurrection was taking those believers who had died out of Sheol and taking them into the presence of God. They were separated from God. Now they're in His presence. That didn't happen until AD 70. So the sacrifice was complete. It was done. And they were taken into His presence. Yeshua then concludes His defense here the same way, this first part of the defense, the same way He began it. Notice what He says in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. He said, look, I'm not doing stuff on my own. I'm nothing. I just judge as I hear, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. That's the same thing, says the same thing as verse 19. Look at these two verses. I can do nothing on my own initiative. Verse 19, so the Son can do nothing of Himself. Verse 30, I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Verse 19, for whatever the Father does, these things the Son does in like manner. He says, I'm doing whatever the Father does because I'm in mere image of Him. We're in unity. I can't do anything that He doesn't do. It's impossible. Now, verse 30 is a transitional verse. It concludes Yeshua's explanation of the Son's equity with the Father, His equality with the Father. And it opens the next section about the testimony that people give to Yeshua, which we'll look at next time. So Yeshua's point in this first section is He can't do anything independently of the Father. If He's doing it, it's because He saw the Father doing it. He's in perfect unity because they are one. He doesn't do anything on His own initiative. He lives in submission to the Father. He says, don't seek my own will. And His judgment is the result of listening to the Father. It's just. Because He has no self-glory. The Son's will is totally to advance the Father's will. And that's why we talked last week about the, you know, the Son, could the Son have sinned? Well, only if the Father could sin. And the Father can't sin, so the Son can never sin. And that was a question that came in from Gary last time. Well, you know, is it a real temptation if he couldn't have sinned? So, let me ask you this question. This kind of helps answer this. All right. Have you ever been tempted and not sinned? Please say yes. I mean, maybe one time, maybe one time you were tempted and you didn't do it. So is that temptation not real? Oh, of course it was real. You were tempted, you just fought it. Well, the Lord couldn't have gave in because He's God. And His humanity was definitely tempted. I think it's like, you know, I like to explain this as like, you take a, a steel I-beam, let's say a 12-inch I-beam, and you take a coat hanger representing humanity. The I-beam represents deity. All right? Can the human, can the coat hanger be bent? Yeah, any way you want. Can the eye beam? No. Well, you take the coat hanger, weld it to the eye beam. That's the God man. 
You can't, he's not going to sin. He couldn't have sinned. People, people get upset about that. Somehow it bothers them that the Lord could not have sinned. But in this text, he is saying, I do only the things the Father does. So unless you got the Father sinning, the Son cannot sin. Alright? Alright. That's it. Alright, that's it for this text. He, now he's going to kind of switch here. This 30, like it says, an introduction. He's going to go and start talking about testimony. I've got, you know, I got plenty of witnesses to who I am. Not only am I saying this, I want you to hear the witnesses. You know, we're going to pull John the Baptist. We're going to pull the scripture. We're going to pull Moses. We're going to, you know, pull God the Father. We're going to get all these witnesses in who testify that you guys are right. I am saying I'm equal with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you for this text, Lord. I pray that uh, you would give us understanding, Lord. Some of these things are deep. Some of this this understanding, the eternal generation, Lord, is, as I said seriously, it's, it's beyond my understanding, Lord. I can't even begin to comprehend the works of the Trinity. But I do understand that it's not saying that the Son came into being because too many scriptures say He always existed. Lord, guide us in the truth, Father. Give us hearts to hear. Give us ears to hear. I pray you give us the hearts of Berean, Lord, that we would just not accept things that we hear until we dig and study them and are, are convinced in our own mind that they are true because we've done our research. Thank you for your grace, Lord. Amen. All right, questions, comments? Um, I'm going to answer a couple questions I got last time that I didn't get to because I didn't know they came in. Uh, Mark from Montana asked, he said, do you see John 6.44 paired with John 14.6 as Yeshua declaring His equality with the Father? Yeah, I think I would connect those two. You know, he says in 14.6, no one comes to the Father but through me. You don't get to the Father but through the Son. In 6.44, which is one of my favorite verses, he says, no one come to me unless the Father draws him. You know, they're working together. You don't come to Yeshua except through the Father. You don't come to the Father but through Yeshua. They're connected. That's why I said you can't separate that and say, you know, because I've heard, so, I've met so many people. Oh, I, I haven't read in the Bible. I really believe in Jesus. I think he's right up there with Muhammad. Like, no, he's not. He, he's not another idol you add to your shelf. He is it. He's the only one. If you believe that there's a God the Father, then the only way through him, according to Yeshua, you know, and he's not, a, like we talked last week, he's not a good man, he's not a great teacher. Good men, great teacher, didn't claim to be God. Alright? And he did claim to be God. There was a comment on one of the YouTube, vid- the YouTube video from that, I guess it was, was it last week? No, week? Yeah, I guess it was last week, it's about the deity of Christ. You know, some guy made a comment saying, you know, well, he's never called God the Son. You know, and I'm like, did you even listen to this? You know, I spent an hour presenting my case, and you blow it all away because it never says God the Son in the Bible. There's a lot of things the Bible doesn't ever say that we know are true, okay? And, uh, you know, it's just frustrating after, you know, presenting an hour that no one tries to refute. He didn't try to refute or argue with anything I said. He just, here's my little point, and that topples everything you said, you know? Okay, you know, and that's how you want it to be. Uh Gary Cole says, "Is this is from last week also, says, sister-in-law had a question, uh, was it impossible for Jesus to sin? And we just talked about it. Yeah, it was. It was impossible for him to sin. Why, and why do I believe he had no choice? Because he's a God-man. And God can't sin. And he always does those things that please the Father. You think him sinning would please the Father? No. So he doesn't sin. He can't sin. 
All right? And again, don't think that means temptation is not real. You know, it's very real. I've been tempted sometimes and I haven't given in. And it's more of a temptation than when you do give in. You know? Temptation ends when you give in. Other times you fight it and you try to do what's right. All right, Gary asked another question. Uh, based on futurism, are there Jewish scholars today that say Yeshua cannot be equal with God because he didn't keep his own prophecy? They just say he can't be equal with God, that he's not God because he's not the Messiah because the Messiah was going to be a political ruler. Okay, they wanted a political ruler. They didn't want a spiritual leader. All right. And up until the second temple period, you can go back in the literature and dig this up. Even up into the second temple period, the Jews believed in two powers in heaven. We talked about this last week. They saw two different powers. They knew and they believed in monotheism. There was no question there. They saw this Godhead, so to speak, and understood it. But once Yeshua came, claiming to be that power, then they said, we don't believe in that two-power stuff anymore. And from the second temple on, they did away. We don't believe in that anymore because if they believed it, they had to see Yeshua as the second power and realize He's God. And they so they rewrote it. He's not who they wanted. At that time, they wanted a political leader. Even now, you know, they're still waiting for someone to come and, and fix everything for them. And, you know, it, it's, it was way too evident. But their hearts were hardened. So they missed it. All right, anybody else? Any questions? I think I got everything online. Yes, Stan? Um, is that, you know, like with the futurists now, they're looking more for an earthly kingdom than, you know, the spiritual kingdom? Well, I think that's true. I think the futurists, for the most part, that, you know, they're making, I think futurists make the same mistake the Pharisees made in the first century. Okay, they want a political, physical ruler. That's what the, that's why the Pharisees miss Christ. That's why futurists miss Christ today. We want a physical rule. He's going to come down. You're going to see him float out of the sky. You know, he, he's going to come, like the Bible says, he's going to come in like manner as the Father will. Go back to Isaiah 19, see how the Father came. No one saw a figure. No one saw anything. He was judged by another nation. You know, that, that's what they said. It was another nation judging him. But God said, I was present in the judgment. He came to judge. You didn't see him. But they want a physical ruler on the physical earth to set up because they read these texts from the, you know, the Tanakh about, you know, David's going to set up his throne. Yeshua is the fulfillment of the prophecy of David sitting on the throne, giving an everlasting kingdom. All right. They just don't, you know, you have to see how the New Testament writers interpret it. And they give us clear interpretation that what they see happening, you know, James and Peter made it clear, you know, these Gentiles are coming in. Well, this is what was prophesied in Amos, but the tabernacle of David is being rebuilt right now. Well, they thought it was something different. He made it clear what it was. Yeah, so there, are, you know, we have different ideas. And again, this idea of transition period is very, very important. That's why audience relevance is so important. Most people don't get it. Even people who get it somewhat don't take it, you know. Well, yeah, I get it. It was talking to them, but still, that's for, still for us. You know, well, wait a minute, you know, there's application for us. You know, the Bible is full of things that apply to us, but we really have to understand is this principle, is this thing that he's saying specifically for those people at that time, is there a time indicator on it or is it just open in general for everybody? And we got to make that distinction because, you know, if you don't, you're in trouble and you say, yes, we're living in the last days. You know, John MacArthur, you know, he's quick to see we're in the last days. The last days of what? Well, the last days of the Jewish age. Well, the last days of the Jewish age has lasted longer than the whole other days of the Jewish age. Okay? 
The Jewish age was 1600 years in the making before it became the last days. And the last days are way longer than the original. How can last days be longer than you ever existed? That makes no sense. But again, they get the time all mixed up. They see we're living in this age. We're living in the present evil age, they say. Well, I would agree that the age is evil we're living in, but it's not the present evil age of the Bible. Galatians talked about that's not it. It's a whole different ballgame. John, do you have a question? Comment? I had an experience that I knew that God had come into my life. Whatever. I've been born again. I assume most Christians have that experience. I don't know. When eternal life came, when God's presence came, when God inhabited His tabernacle, what if there was an ex- what experiential change happened to those Christians back then in 78? Was there an experiential change where they realized that God had come and inhabited them? Yeah, that's a John's question is was there did the saints at AD seventy when they received eternal life, was there some experiential evidence of that change? I don't know. You know, um I know, just like you, when I got saved, I knew it. Things changed. I didn't like some of the changes. I didn't. I was upset. What the heck? I was like confused. What is happening to me? I couldn't enjoy sin anymore like I used to. You know, it just, it was ruining everything for me. You know, and I, and so I knew something had happened. And I'd meet Christians who were like, yeah, I was saying, you know, and I wonder, you know, did they really get it? Because it was, you know, but I, I can't put my experience on anybody else, you know. I just had to go by what the Bible says. If you believe, my life was drastically changed. Things happened. All right, but what happened with them? I don't know. How much did they even understand what was really going on? I don't know, but they received eternal life at that point. I would think some things changed. Like I said, did for you, did for me. I just think when God moves into a life, things are different. You know? I also, though, believe if you don't have fellowship and you don't have education and teaching, then you can go stagnant real quick. Okay? Because you just, well, that was cool, but what was it? And all of a sudden you just go off into the way you used to be. You know, you need, you know, some encouragement. We need the body. The body is very important. We need each other to encourage, to lift up, to support along the way. David? Uh, just a question uh, regarding the Hebrew understanding of, you know, there being two Yahweh's for the second clinical period. What, do you know what their commentary is regarding um, like the Holy Spirit, because we know in the Tanakh, you know, it speaks a lot about the Holy Spirit coming upon people. So, how did they do that in conjunction with the two powers? Okay, yeah. the 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 question David asks is about the two powers, and what about the Holy Spirit? There are some texts that make it clear that the Jews in the Second Temple period and prior to that believed in a Trinity, so to speak. You know, they understood because they saw these three powers. They really did. You know, uh, we focus on two powers because that's so evident and so clear. But there's some scriptures, and I can't, I don't have them on top of my head right now, but there are some scriptures that indicate they believe the Spirit too was this other power. So they, there was this Jewish trinity, so to speak. And that's what cracks me up with Christians today. Oh, you can't believe in monotheism and have a trinity. The Jews did. They were, you know, avid monotheistic, but they understood because it's not three gods. It's one God. In three persons. I know it's kind of hard to grasp sometimes, but I just, that's what the scriptures teach. 
And so there, yes, there are indications in Jewish writings that they believed in a trinity, so to speak. I can't think of this Jewish, he's a, com, he's a um, contemporary Jewish writer, he writes right now, and he talks about, I got no problems with the trinity, he said. You know, that's clearly, you know, of course, he, his view is more of a uh, modalism view, you know, which we wouldn't agree with, but he's not a Christian, you know, but he sees this three powers, you know, very clearly. Anybody else? We done? All right, I'm going to close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your love for us, Lord. Thanks for the opportunity as your family to get together and just share with one another, be encouraged by one another. Lord, thanks for loving us. Amen.